I don't really want to bother you with the context of the parable other than to say it contains an important principle, something which is common to us all. Our British parliamentary system uh, has got, it's like a two-tier system. It's got the House of Commons and the House of Lords, both of which meet in the Palace of Westminster. And of course, the House of Commons is where our elected MPs sit. And the House of Lords is where the Lords sit, who are not elected, but they are appointed usually by the government of the day, who try to get some of their own Labour or Conservative or Liberal supporters on board in the House of Lords. House of Commons is called the Lower House. The House of Lords is the Upper House. And the reason for this is, and it's good for democracy, the reason is simple. Our elected MPs throughout their four years will pass certain bills through Parliament. It may be relating to a law they have to pass or it may be some economic initiative that they want to get through, or whatever. And once they do that, then that goes to the House of Lords, to the upper chamber, where they look at it, and they talk about it and debate about it, and they usually offer some suggestions for amendments to that bill. Now, they haven't got the power to stop the bill, but they can hold it up, and they can make often very good amendments. And so then it goes back to the lower house, to our MPs, and they discuss that again. And oftentimes they say, yes, that amendment is worthy to do, so we'll amend the bill, and then we'll get it through uh, the second time. And so, in effect, it is an opportunity for our MPs to have second thoughts about the bill. Second thoughts about that law that they're going to pass. And in our parable here, we have these two sons. The father said to the first one, go work in my vineyard. And he said, no, I'm not going to do it. But then he had second thoughts. And he went back and he did it. Second son, son, go work in my vineyard. And he says, right, father, immediately I'll go right away. But then he had second thoughts and he didn't go. And he didn't do it. And so what I want to share this morning is, is about having second thoughts. Having second thoughts very often determine the outcome of our actions. Certainly with those two sons, it absolutely determined the outcome of their actions. And all of us have second thoughts about almost everything we're going to do. Very few people act on their first thought. Even if their first thought is really, really good. And even if it's the thing they eventually do, but they usually have second thoughts about it, and it's what you do with those second thoughts determine the outcome of what you're going to do. In Luke chapter 10, which is another well-known parable, Luke chapter 10, verse 30. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, 
And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And so he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Let's just stop there. We know the story. We're very familiar with the story. Here's this man, he's battered, he's bruised, he's beaten almost to within an inch of his life, he's lying on the road, and by chance there came past a priest who saw him but immediately passed by on the other side. He treated that man with utter contempt, had absolutely no interest in him whatsoever. Walking past He looked over, saw the body lying, and hurriedly made his way on. The Levite, who would be a priest's helper, he was next to come along. Now, the New Living Translation makes this a little more clear. The New Living Translation, verse 31, said this, By chance a priest came along. When he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant, this is the Levite, He walked over and looked at him lying there. But he also passed by on the other side. Now whether it was initially just curiosity or whether it was concern, but this Levite, when he saw him, he walked over and he looked at him. Now, even if it was just curiosity, but maybe it was concern. But he had second thoughts. And he decided, I don't want to get involved in this. And he also went and passed by on the other side. Only the Samaritan who had compassion on him, only the Samaritan actually dealt with him, didn't he? But it was the Levite I draw your attention to who went over, looked at him, thought about it, but then he had second thoughts, and he turned, and he went away. Your second thought often will determine the outcome of your actions. So pay heed to your second thoughts. Turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 26. And this is the Apostle Paul with his defense before King Agrippa and before Festus. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you, hear me patiently. Now, he wasn't flattering this man. This man knew all the customs of the Jews. This Agrippa is in a, in a, in a dynasty of Herods. This man's father killed John the Baptist. 
His grandfather was the one who killed all the little babies at Jesus' birth. So this man was well acquainted with all of the customs and all of the religion of the Jews. So he goes on, My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise are twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road I saw light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying, Why are you, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I have yet to reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both the small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be in the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all those who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. Now Paul here is standing under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, speaking with this compulsion and this impulse of the Spirit, penetrating the very heart of this man, 
who knows all of these things, knows the prophecies, knows about Jesus. And Jesus was a household name. Knows all of this. And so Paul preaching unto the anointing of the Holy Spirit to this man, testifying and witnessing about Christ, about his life, how he was changed. Agrippa's listening intently. And then he stopped and he said, you almost persuaded me to be a Christian. Now there are commentators who say that he was being sarcastic. As in, you think you almost could persuade me to be a Christian? You think I could become a Christian? There's some commentators as that feeling, but I don't get that. In fact, the way Paul answered, I believe Agrippa came that close. Almost. This was really moving his heart, really touching him. And he was getting to that place and the apostle Paul was preaching. And you can be sure Paul was looking right in his eyes. Because Paul knows conviction when he sees it. You can be sure he's looking right. He says, I know you know these things. I know you believe the prophets. I know you wouldn't think it incredible that God should raise the dead. And he's looking right at him. And maybe even pointing right at him. And then he stops. And he says, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. But you see, it's second thoughts. Maybe it was his pride. Maybe it was position. Maybe it was his politics. Whatever. But at that moment, he had second thoughts. I wonder how many people has come into a gospel service as I had done many times and has sat in a seat and the Holy Spirit has taken the words of a preacher and has penetrated their very heart. And they came to the place of decision. And they almost came to Christ. They almost prayed that prayer of surrender. For they didn't quite make it. I remember years and years ago, and he wouldn't mind me telling this. He's, he's told it to a number of people. And there was a a young man came to the church at that time and his dad started to come with him. And I remember it was one Sunday night. I hadn't preached in hell for years. Directly about hell. Mentioned it, but not a message directly about hell. And this was a church-going man. And he came and he sat two rows back from the front right at the very end. And as I was preaching, I caught his eye. And boy, was he under conviction. So the end of it, when I gave an appeal, and you know I don't give long appeals, at the end of it, I gave a pay, I watched him, and he gripped the front of the seat, and he moved out like this, still holding on to the seat, and then he moved back in again. He did that about three or four times, kept moving out, kept, and I just kept it going because I knew he was under so much pressure. And in the end, he let go, and he came up, and we didn't have the communion table there at the time, it was just the pulpit. And his hands grabbed the top of the His knuckles was white. I was looking at him. He was just so under conviction. And he got wonderfully saved. And he's still wonderfully saved to this day. And for years and for years and years, he, he taught Sunday school in the Church of Ireland. Uh, but it was that second thought, back and forward, back and forward, until finally he made the decision. Second thoughts are important. They really are. 
In Acts chapter 7. By the way, I should have told you that there are toilets just where Ken is standing out that door and just into the left, all right? Should have told you that at the start. <laughs> By about two o'clock, you'll need them, so you're okay yet. <laughs> and this is Stephen before the council. And he really preaches up a storm and he, he really angers them. Calls them stiff-necked and uncircumcised in the heart, usually killed the prophets. And in verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then they cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Chapter 8. Now Paul was consenting to his death. And at that time, great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Then chapter 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the, uh, to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? What a story. What a moment in the life of the great persecutor of the church. <coughs> Even though he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter. Even though he was fully determined to imprison as many Christians as he could find, and actually forced some of them to blaspheme. So they must have been torturing them. And yet in spite of all of that, Jesus said, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. Your conscience is being pricked. Your heart is being pricked. Even though you're doing this, and even though you have done so much against my church, and actually against me. But it's hard for you to continue kicking against what you know is right. That's what Jesus was saying. And he says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And at that moment, 
all of those second thoughts he was having. When do you think those second thoughts started? I am absolutely convinced it was at the stoning of Stephen. Even though he continued. But he had never seen a Christian like Stephen. He had imprisoned. He had flogged. He had beaten up. He had put to death. But he had never seen a believer like Stephen. His face shone. He had never heard words coming out of a Christian's mouth who has been persecuted like that before. Lord, do not lay this sin to their charge. I see heaven opened. I see Jesus at the right hand of the Father. I never had heard that before. And from that moment on, I'm absolutely convinced the conviction of the Holy Spirit began to work and his conscience and his heart was pricked until that experience in the road to Damascus. And all of those thoughts led him to that place where when Jesus said, it's me you're persecuting, that's when his heart melted and that's when he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And his life was never the same again. Demas, he too had second thoughts and he lost his ministry. What an opportunity. Imagine being mentored by the great apostle Paul, the greatest preacher on earth. And he was being mentored by him. He had been his protege, as it were. He had been one in training. He could have become a great evangelist or maybe a great pastor. Maybe he could raise up a church in somewhere. But at some point along the road, he had second thoughts. And his second thought was, do you know what? I don't want this anymore. I don't want this anymore. And he turned back. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. He didn't want to make the sacrifice. He didn't want to make the full commitment. He didn't want to give up everything. There was something about the world that he was not willing to give up. And he forsook the Apostle Paul. And he lost his ministry. Gone. Never heard. Into the dustbin of history. What a shame. What might have been. What might have been except for those second thoughts. Esther, she had second thoughts. You remember how she was chosen by Ahasuerus, the king, and how that Mordecai said, don't tell him you're a Jewess. Don't let anybody know that we're Jews. And how for quite a while that was the case, and then Haman decided he would plot against the Jews. Mordecai found that out. Remember he went to Esther and said, Esther, there's a plan afoot to destroy all the Jews all over the kingdom. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into the king because he favors you. I want you to go into the king and I want you to speak on our behalf. Remember what she said? She sent word back to Mordecai. She says, Mordecai, you don't understand. I just can't barge into the king Yes, he's chosen me, but he's chosen many others. And I've had my turn with the king, and I may have another turn, but I, I, I have to wait till he asks me to come. If I just walk into his presence unannounced, it means death. And that was the word she sent back to Mordecai. Remember what Mordecai said? Mordecai said, but listen. Who knows, but you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. 
And by the way, even if you don't do this, God will raise up somebody else, but don't think you and your family will be spared. But he says, I believe that God has brought you to that position for this very hour, for this very cause. So then she had second thoughts. Her first thought was self-preservation. Her first thought was born out of fear for herself. He could kill me. But her second thought was, I've got to do this for my people. Yes, God has brought me into this place of favor. So she sent word back. She says, get everybody to pray for me. Get people to fast and pray for me. And I'll go in. And if he holds out the scepter, and you know the rest of the story, how the Jews were saved because of Esther's second thoughts. Old Naaman, he had second thoughts, hadn't he? Remember in 2 Kings 5? He went to the door of the prophet. And the prophet didn't even go out to see him. The prophet sent his, his helper out. And the helper said, The prophet said, If you go down to the Jordan and dip in that seven times, you'll get your healing. And he was raging. He was absolutely incandescent with rage. How dare he treat me? Did he not know I'm the, I'm the great general of the king of Syria's army? Did he not know who I am? <laughs> and his whole retinue was there. He did not know who I am. He says, I thought he would come out and he'd wave his hand over me and make a whole big show. I'm an important person, don't you know? Well, I should just say, tell him to go and dip in the river seven times. He'd be all right. <laughs> One of the... <coughs> Pastor David Purse down in, down in Whitewell, he preached a sermon a while back. I read it in the paper and I thought it was a great title. It says, Seven Little Ducks in a Dirty River. <laughs> <laughs> That's, a great, that's the best title I've ever heard for that sermon. Seven little ducks in a dirty river. And, it, <laughs> and so he was raging. And one of his servants said to him, look, if he had to ask you to do a really, really hard thing, wouldn't you have done it? Because that would have fed his ego. He said, he's asked you to do something simple. Look, just go ahead. Just play along. So just play along. Just see what happens. And he had second thoughts. And he swallowed his pride and he went into that river and he dipped seven times. And he came out and his skin was like a baby's. He got a miracle because he had a second thought. I wonder are you having any second thoughts today? About something, someone. How are you going to know whether that second thought is of God whether it's of your, just yourself or whether it's of the devil how are you going to know because it's important what you do with your second thoughts so first of all where's the clocks in this place we're alright how is your posteriors? Are you managing those hard seats today? Are they all right? You're not shifting around too much? You'll all bring your cushions next week, won't you? All right. First thing, if I heed my second thought, these things ask yourself, if I heed my second thought, will it glorify God? Will it glorify God? Paul says, whatever you do, even whatever you eat, whatever you drink, do all to the glory of God. So our whole lives is to be lived to the glory of God. Will this glorify God? 
Will it bless God? Will it praise God? Will it reflect well on Him? Will it please Him? That's the first thing to ask. And you mightn't have to go any further than that. If the answer is no, then you say, so be it. I'll not do it. I'll lay that aside. Secondly, will it cause me to be obedient? The first son in the parable, his second thought caused him to be obedient. The second son in the parable, his second thought caused him to be disobedient. So ask yourself, if I do this, if I go with my second thought, will I be obedient or disobedient? Jesus was obedient. Father, if it's possible for this cup to pass from me, but if not, not my will, but yours be done. If it's possible. I mean, who would want to go to the cross? Who would want to suffer that way if there was any other way? But there wasn't. Paul was said, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. So ask yourself, will I be obedient? Ask yourself, will this bring blessing to others? <coughs> will it meet the needs of others? Will it serve others? Because you're meant to be a blessing, not just to be blessed. And oftentimes our first thought is, well, this bless me. Now, God does want to bless us and He does favor us. But we should be thinking, how is this going to bless others? How will this affect others around me? How will this affect those that I work with, I live with, or live beside, or whatever the case may be? Will this be a blessing to them or a hindrance to them? Or a stumbling block to them? Also, will this cause me to grow spiritually? That's a good question to ask yourself. Or will this come between me and the Lord? Will this somehow hinder my growth spiritually? That's a good question to ask, for instance, regarding a job or career, a business you may want to start or whatever. You've got to think, how will this impact my life spiritually? Very often, that's the last thing we think about because we want to do something so badly. But I would advise you and encourage you to think about that. Will this affect my life spiritually? Now, I'm not necessarily talking about your job or your career, your vacation. In fact, those may be the very things that God will use for you to be a blessing and to bless you with. But I'm talking more about the entanglements of life. Because if we're not careful, even though something may be in and of itself good, but if it entangles us to the point where it's impacting us spiritually, it's dragging us down spiritually. For instance, I have no longer time for church. Well, whatever you're doing, you're too busy. If you have no time for the house of God, you're just too busy. You need to drop something. You need to get out of something. Because that's going to affect you spiritually. I have no time to read, I have no time to pray, I have no time to fellowship. Stop what you're doing, whatever that may be, and say, I've got to make time because this is the most important thing in my life to honor the Lord in my life spiritually. 
Will this cause me to grow spiritually or will it not? In Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, where it talks about the parable of the sower. Then Jesus goes on to explain the parable of the sower in verse 13 of Mark 4. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown, and they hear, but Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. And afterwards, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble." Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They're the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Entanglements, the desire of other things entering in choke the word and it becomes Unfruitful. I remember years ago, the church that we came from, there was a young man who was becoming very successful in business, making pots of money. I mean just pot loads of money, shed loads of it. Had everything. And he says, God has blessed me because the more God blesses me, the more I'm going to give to God's kingdom. And that seemed a noble sentiment. And for a while he did that. But then he couldn't stop making money. And then he started to miss church. Because his business would take him away a lot. And then he started to miss his family. Because his business would take him away more. And in the end, he made more and more and more and more. And his spiritual life at the same time went down and down and down. And his married life went down and down. Till the end... He had no spiritual life, no church life, no married life. Until he had second thoughts. And after years, and I mean years, flew Concord and everything. And after years, he realized, I've sold my soul for this. And I've ruined my marriage for this. And my walk with God is non-existent. And he got on his knees and he repented. He came back to Christ. And his wife received him back. And to this day, he's still going for God. Him and his wife are still together. And he's doing a good work for the kingdom of God. Because he had second thoughts. But he got entangled, you see, with the things of this world, the things of life. Even though they were legitimate. But they didn't do his spiritual life any good. If I obey my second thoughts, and we'll be finished in a moment. If I obey my second thoughts, will I be in the will of God? Now, any Christian worth their salt that I have ever met is concerned about the will of God. We want to know, are we in the will of God? What is the will of God? How do you know the will of God? Well, let me say this right away. The vast majority of the will of God is already revealed to us through His Word. The vast majority of it. 
So let's not make a great, big, great, big mystery out of this. This is why God has given us His Word. So there is the general will of God, which is for every born-again believer. In fact, for every non-believer too, for that matter, God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. <coughs> There's a general will for all of us that we follow the Lord, that we love the Lord, that we serve the Lord, we come to the house of God, we pray, we do our devotions, we worship the Lord together, we do that, a general that's for everybody, no exceptions. Then there's God's specific will. There are many commands in the Bible. Many thou shalt nots, or thou shalts, as the case may be. Clear cut, no argument, black and white. You do it or you don't do it. Easy, written for us. But what about the will of God for our personal lives when you can't find it in Scripture. Well, it's regarding maybe a mate or a job or a business opportunity or whatever, but there's no chapter and verse for it. What are you going to do then? How do you know the will of God? It's a big subject, and we really haven't time to go into it in any great depth, but just a few pointers, all right? First of all, you make sure that whatever it is, and this I suppose is obvious, but sometimes I, over the years I've seen people do things that are not the obvious. Make sure that it does not contradict the Word of God. If it contradicts the Word of God, in principle, you may not find it written there, but in principle, if it contradicts the Word of God, you can be sure it's not, you're not going to be in the will of God doing it if it contradicts the principle of God's Word. Now, every believer should know that, and every believer should obey that, but trust me, after 35 years in ministry, they don't. So, you have to say this. Make sure it is not contradicting the Word of God, or the principle of the Word of God. Secondly, ask the Holy Spirit to guide you. As many as are the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit wants to guide us. He wants to show us. He wants to lead us. Philippians 2.13, it is God who works within you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So trust the Holy Spirit. Say, Holy Spirit, I'm not sure about this. I don't think it's any way contradicting the principle of God's word, but I'm just not sure. Help me, lead me, guide me in this. Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and 
perfect will of God. Present your bodies. Renew your mind. God wants all of us, every part of us, spirit, soul, and body, dedicated to Him, reaching out to Him, trusting in Him, presenting ourselves before Him. If we do that, we're going to find and we're going to prove the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If we're not prepared to submit to Him our bodies, our minds, our very souls, then forget about trying to find the will of God. It's not going to happen. It's not going to show you. Because those are the first things we should do. But if we submit ourselves, our bodies, to God, submit our minds to the Word of God, then the Holy Spirit can lead us and He can guide us into whatever the case may be. The great late English preacher F.B. Meyer, he said this, he said, when we want to know God's will, there are three things which always occur. The inward impulse, the Word of God, and the trend of circumstances. He says, never act until these three things agree. The inward impulse. Now, that's objective. Or that's subjective, I should say, to how you feel sometimes. But if we're living right, and we submit ourselves, body, mind, spirit to God, then we get promptings, impulses. So, we get an impulse, we get a prompting. Is this the Holy Spirit? Is this just what I had for supper last night? We've got to find that out. So we, we look for other things. We look to the Word of God. Does this violate the principle of the Word of God? No, it doesn't. So we're in good ground. We're feeding this impulse. We're saying, no, this doesn't violate the principle of God's Word. What about the trend of circumstances? Because you believe in the providential hand of God leading and guiding us. And so sometimes it's the trend of circumstances. God leading us into a certain place in our life, at a certain time in our life, a certain moment. It all fits together. And sometimes it's only when all those things start to happen. It's, you know, it'd be lovely if God would just write on a blackboard or something, you know, or type it out in your iPad and there it's black and you know what to do. But he doesn't work that way. He doesn't work that way. He wants you to live every day looking to Him and trusting in Him and believing His Spirit will lead you and guide you. So that only comes through relationship with Him and that's why He takes you one day at a time. Give us this day our daily bread. It's one day at a time you live with the Lord. But as you go on and then you see the trend of circumstances. Now some things is obvious. I'm a lousy singer. I, I sing in the key of Yale. So there is no possible way that I could stand up here and pretend that I was a soloist. That is obvious to me. And yet there's some things that are obvious to everybody else that are not obvious to the person who's doing whatever they're doing. Isn't that true? If they would just look at the circumstances and say, well, if God hasn't gifted me with that, it's definitely not for me. But sometimes people want to do something so badly they imagine they are gifted to do it, and they're not. And they really need to just lay that down and say, well, God, what is it you want me to do? 
And if God wants you to do something, he'll give you the ability to do it. He'll give you the anointing to do it. He'll open the door for you to do it. These are all the trend of circumstances, and we should look for those things. And, and ask for advice. Go to people. Talk to people. Ask them to help you to pray and, and seek the Lord. Maybe a few confidants, a couple of special friends you've got, and all of this. All this helps you to know what the will of God is for your life at any particular given time. There's more scriptures, but we're running out of time. No seats are hard, as I said, so... I'll have a bit of mercy on you. Are you having second thoughts? Think about those second thoughts. And say, Lord, if I do this, how will this affect me? How will this affect my family? How will this affect those around me? How will this affect my <laughs> church? How will this affect whatever? And think of some of those points. And make sure your second thought is the right one. Because that could determine the outcome of your actions from here on out. Amen? Let's pray.